Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 2.30, Leisler's Rebellion. Welcome to the final narrative episode of Season 2, and the final episode in our story arc on the Dominion of New England. We have spent the last two episodes looking at the collapse of the Dominion government in New England. However, recall that the Dominion had actually grown beyond its boundaries of just New England, now encompassing New York, as well as the Jerseys. While in Rhode Island, Connecticut, and Plymouth, the collapse of the Dominion was relatively peaceful, at least compared to what happened in Boston, it does not mean that the rebellion in Boston was entirely isolated. This week, we are going to turn our attention to the other rebellion in the Dominion, specifically one led by New York militia captain, Jacob Leisler. As a relatively late player to the Dominion, New York was largely different from the New England colonies in regard to their role in the Dominion. New York had always been a far more restrictive place than New England, from pretty much that moment that it was captured from the Dutch. In no small part, it was Edmund Andros himself, during his time as governor of New York, that would help ensure that New York was tightly bound to the crown. This was, of course, not without its dissenters. Recall the battle, chiefly out on Long Island, for a representative assembly to be formed in the colony, something that Andros himself actually favored. Well, then Duke of York James reluctantly acquiesced to the idea of an assembly, he would promptly change his mind when he traded in that Duke of York title and became King James II. This move away from allowing an assembly in large part was due to James's struggles to re-establish royal prerogative elsewhere in the colonies, specifically, of course, in New England. However, despite the fact that New York had really missed out on a lot of the freedoms that were enjoyed throughout New England, they too were not thrilled with the way things were going. Long Island, of course, had been clamoring for an assembly, something they at least believed they had won when James signed the aforementioned Charter of Liberties. Therefore, while dissenters certainly exist in New York, especially in Long Island, it never rises to that level that we see up in places like Massachusetts. New York was far more in line with English colonial policy than up in New England. Following the dismissal of Thomas Donegan, the colony came under the command of Francis Nicholson. Nicholson was acting as the lieutenant governor for Andros, though was largely in control of the colony. For the government in New York, the events of April 1689 were absolutely devastating in both their timing and effect. The colony was continuing to struggle financially, and now several of the most important men in the colony found themselves in jail as they had been amongst the counselors to Andros back in Boston. Somewhat predictably, the first sign of trouble would pop up over in Long Island, which, as we just discussed a moment ago, had always been filled with the loudest detractors towards English colonial rule in New York. It was the Long Islanders who had been amongst the most vocal proponents of getting the Charter of Liberty signed. Certainly, after winning the battle for the Charter, only to find out that James II wasn't going to actually approve it, did not endear them to the king. Despite this sense of anger and resentment, however, no evidence exists that Long Island was going to be the bastion of dissent. They were upset, yes, but prior to the events in Boston that April, nothing really suggests that they were planning on leading the charge against the Dominion. As was the case throughout the Dominion, when news of the events in Boston reached New York in late April of 1689, some kind of a response was going to be required. The Long Islanders viewed their struggle in much the same vein as those over in New England, who saw the Dominion's government, and the English colonial system in general, to be completely arbitrary. Therefore, when news arrived of the events in Boston, 
Long Islanders agreed that their best move would be to secure the forts in the colony. Questions can be asked just whom they were securing said forts for. However, it seems pretty suggestive that they were making sure, specifically, that they were the ones who controlled the forts from anybody who may challenge their actions. While officially the company line was that they were securing the forts in New York to protect from a foreign enemy, it appears that their real enemy was the remnants of Dominion rule that they were trying to protect themselves from. Much as was the case in Massachusetts, the lack of information would prove to be a serious blow to the Dominion government. Francis Nicholson learned about the overthrow of James II sometime during March of 1689, and, as did Andros in Massachusetts, worked very hard to suppress that information. And, of course, as in Massachusetts, this failed miserably, which means that the version of events that the colonists were hearing were made up largely of rumors and conjecture. This all goes to setting up a dangerous and ultimately untenable situation for New York. With the collapse of the Dominion, any legitimate claim to the government that Nicholson had suddenly was on very shaky ground. The suppression of the news of the overthrow of James II did much to help further the rapidly growing rift between the colonists and the Dominion government. With rumors abounding about the state of the government in England and now the overthrow of the Dominion and the arrest of Andros, the hold that Nicholson had on the colony was clearly faltering. Likewise, let's not forget that just 25 years before, this New York had been a Dutch colony. Did William of Orange already have friends in the colony ready to overthrow the government? A final blow, however, was still to come, and one that would not be exposed immediately. When war broke out up in Maine, the men who went to fight it were largely troops from New York. This means that should a rebellion break out in New York, the regulars were several hundred miles to the north. This would in turn force a reliance upon local militia to protect the colony and help maintain the government. New York had been at the center of growing tensions between the English and the French with their Indian allies. When war therefore broke out in Maine, it makes sense that it was the New Yorkers who went off to fight it. As a result of these tensions, New York had spent years becoming increasingly anti-Catholic. This is going on at the same time that James II is moving England in a decidedly Catholic direction. While New York may not have been staunchly Puritan as in New England, they were nonetheless deeply concerned that James II's behavior was going to take the colony in the wrong direction altogether. At a bare minimum, the actions of James II had done nothing to make him a popular figure in New York nor make the Dominion government any more tolerable. Fearful of a Catholic takeover, as the rumors of William's overthrow of James II turned into fact, it served to further alienate the increasingly unpopular Nicholson. In the eyes of the New York colonists, they were worried about a Catholic takeover. And now there was clear evidence supporting that Nicholson had been hiding the information regarding James II's overthrow from them. This was more than enough to convince large swaths of the population that Nicholson himself was at minimum a supporter of a Catholic takeover and at worst directly complicit in such a plot. Rebellion had never been a huge risk previously in New York. However, with the Dominion rapidly coming apart and now the question regarding what was going on back in London, Nicholson found himself in a very unstable position. Much like Andros right before the fall of the Dominion, Nicholson found himself becoming rapidly isolated. The Dominion government initially responded by trying to secure the colony from the risk of French invasion, while at the same time by shutting down the internal rumor mill. While it is unclear if the French were really planning on doing much of anything, 
The fact is that the rumors were that the French were planning an invasion from the north. For Nicholson, this caused him more panic, as there was very little hope that New York could resist such an invasion at that moment. Therefore, the first move was to suddenly sink basically all of the money that the colony had into rapidly fortifying the frontiers from a potential French attack. The second order for Nicholson was putting a clamp on the libelous behavior with the swift passage of anti-sedition laws. Of course, nothing really shouts that a government is secure, quite like a rapid fortification and the passage of anti-sedition laws, something that was lost on absolutely nobody. And as though just to add some more gasoline to the rapidly growing fire, problems would quickly emerge when suddenly merchants were no longer keen on paying their taxes. The reasoning behind this is that the news had already spread to the colonies that James II had been overthrown. His government was gone. With it, the merchants in New York argued that their duty to pay taxes suddenly lacked the legal foundation necessary to enforce. And it did not really help that several of the major tax collectors were Catholic. Among these upset merchants was one who had balked at paying his custom duties. A local militia captain named Jacob Leisler. By early May 1689, what had emerged in New York was a scene of utter fear and panic. Rather than seeming in control, Governor Nicholson appears to himself to have fallen to the panic from the very rumor mill that he was trying to quash. Already unstable, it was on May 30th that things would really begin to fall apart for Nicholson. With so many troops in Maine, Nicholson had only a small contingent of regular troops posted with him in New York. In order to bolster the defenses of the colony, Nicholson was forced to rely upon the local militia to keep order. Having two different sets of troops, the regulars and the militia, however, would lead to conflict between them, as they dealt with confused and occasionally contradictory orders. The issue that came up was innocuous enough. It had to do with a particular posting for guard duty. However, what would begin as a minor spat quickly escalated into a heated argument between the militia company and the English regulars. What Nicholson needed to do was to talk everybody off the ledge and regain control over the situation. That is the thing that one would expect a governor to do. However, knowing that such a move would make for a boring conclusion for today's episode, Nicholson decided to go with a second option. Rather than talking everybody down and calming down the situation, Nicholson threatened to shoot the militia members and then stated that he would rather burn New York to the ground than deal with insubordination. By the next day, Nicholson's words were being repeated throughout the colony. Everybody had grown increasingly tired of what they viewed as arbitrary rule from Nicholson, but now with the threat that if he could not control the militia, he would burn the entire city to the ground, well, that was simply too much for the colonists to ignore. The war in Maine had necessitated that the militia be used to guard the key points in New York, none more important than Fort James. Fort James was the fortification right on the southern tip of Manhattan, near the mouth of the Hudson. Originally established by the Dutch, Fort James was seen as one of the most important forts in the entire colony. Should there be any kind of an amphibious invasion of New York, they were going to have to come through Fort James. With the militia already in control of the fort at the invitation of Nicholson, they had a very easy time taking over completely following the governor's incendiary comments the previous day. Throughout the day, a wave of militia defectors swept through New York, 
Well, there was yet to be a leader for the militia, they all knew that they were done fighting for Nicholson. Early on, the man who began to emerge as the head of the suddenly leaderless militia was a German immigrant and a longtime merchant named Jacob Leisler. Leisler, though not previously named, has been in our story for a while, just hanging out in the background in the shadows. He was among the merchants that caused headaches for Edmund Andros, personally when he had been in New York, by loudly objecting to what he saw as illegal customs. Leisler had risen up to become one of the local militia captains. Leisler would have been one of the first to complain about the seemingly arbitrary rule of not just Nicholson, but his predecessors as well. He had no real love for Nicholson, Donegan, Andros, or any of the other governors who he believed had come to New York and ruled arbitrarily. As had occurred elsewhere in those early days of June of 1689, a committee of public safety was formed in New York to attempt to bring some leadership to the situation. On June 8th, elections were held by the committee, and Leiser was officially named the leader of the militia, and therefore the leader of the rapidly growing rebellion. With the rebellion now becoming organized, Nicholson had little choice but to surrender Fort James to the rebel militia. With his regulars off fighting in Maine, Nicholson found himself suddenly very, very exposed. Nicholson was quickly finding that events had nearly completely isolated him from any kind of relief or support that he could have hoped for. In New England, much of the Dominion's government was now in jail. Edmund Andros, the man whom Nicholson himself would have directly reported to, spent May writing Nicholson letters requesting help, help that was not going to be coming. Nicholson did have some regular soldiers with him. However, even though that certainly could have helped, it was a pretty good question at this point if they could have held off Leisler and his angry militia, a question that Nicholson was not that interested in finding out the answer to. Regardless, however, most of his regulars were off in Maine where they had been fighting under Edmund Andros, and now they themselves were trying to cope with a lack of leadership. The hope, therefore, of reinforcements from the North seemed bleak for Nicholson. By the time of the June 8th election of Leisler by the Committee of Public Safety, it had become abundantly clear to Nicholson that the fight was lost essentially from the moment that it began. Not wanting to join Andros on the gallows, Nicholson decided that his time in New York was at an end. Nicholson boarded a ship and made his way back to England. On the way out the door, he reminded everybody that they should do what they could to help Edmund Andros, and then gave them a reminder to keep collecting those hated custom duties. Now, one would think that abandoning the colony at a time like this would certainly not be a great career move for Francis Nicholson. And sure enough, William III was not very amused by his actions. However, we are going to see Francis Nicholson again, and in the not-too-distant future. He will reappear next season, where he will first become the Lieutenant Governor of Virginia, and eventually will rise up and become the Governor of Maryland. That means that for our story right now, this is not so much a goodbye for Francis Nicholson as it is a we'll see you around. Back in New York with Jacob Leisler in charge and the Committee of Public Safety acting as something of a quasi-assembly, the order of the day quickly shifted to the question of what to do next. The first step, as was the case throughout most of New England, was that they needed to justify their actions. A rebellious militia overthrowing a royal representative was never a great look. However, overthrowing the vestiges of James II in support of William and Mary, well, that had a much better ring to it. Even if it was a transparent attempt to rid themselves of an unpopular figure, 
proclaiming New York for William and Mary at a minimum took the sting out of the event. This is exactly what Leisler would do on June 22nd when he and his militia company proclaimed the new king and queen. Leisler next needed to shore up his own power by working towards eliminating internal threats in the colony. The most obvious threat at this point were the perceived to be Catholics, whom potentially would remain loyal to James II. These fears would become more pronounced when the events of the past six months in England would end up dragging the country into the Nine Years' War against France. Now, those French Catholics posed a real threat to the safety of the colony. This opened the door for Leisler to form the Association of Protestants. This group was dedicated to preserving Protestantism throughout New York. This meant standing in opposition to Catholics and anybody else that might challenge the leadership of Leisler personally. What followed over the next several months was a slow, but ultimately effective, effort by Leisler and the Committee of Public Safety to purge the colony of the representatives from the James II era as well as the Dominion. As Leisler worked on securing his own power base, William III was again left in that same uncomfortable situation that he had been in with New England. William's colonial policy was not that much different than under King James II. We know that upon winning the crown, he had sent that letter to his royal governors that the colony should continue with business as usual for the time being. However, clearly nothing was business as usual, especially up in the now former Dominion of New England. William III, though likely anxious to himself assert his new royal prerogative to the colonies and distressed over the rebellions, could not call out the events at the risk of making himself and his followers look hypocritical had they themselves not just overthrown James II under exactly the same justification that the colonists in New England and New York were getting rid of men like Andros and Nicholson? Furthermore, everybody was happily declaring for King William III. A wrong move would do nothing more than alienate the North American colonies, something that the new king had no interest in doing. At the same time, however, what had occurred in New York was essentially a mutiny. King William understood that there were serious risks to condoning such an action. In New England, that had been an uprising of the entire populace in one swift move. New York had been the militia rising up. Either way, William was placed into a difficult situation on how to handle Jacob Leisler. The initial decision, therefore, was that rather than dealing with him and doing anything direct, the best option might be to sit on it and see how things played out internally. This is exactly what William did. Rather than making a quick and decisive move against Leisler, he decided to move the entire affair to the back burner. This also highlights a real difference between the events in Massachusetts versus New York. In Massachusetts, a single leader fails to ever emerge. This is due in large part to the nature of the rebellion that took place. Massachusetts saw that combination of moderates and members of the old Puritan faction all coming together to overthrow Andros. The merger of the two otherwise opposed groups prevented not only a return to the Puritan hegemony from before 1686, but it made it impossible for a single figure to gain enough control to really emerge as the face of the rebellion. Think back to other conflicts we have seen during the preceding decades. Bacon's Rebellion, King Philip's War, Leisler's Rebellion right now. In each of these three cases, the rebellions were named after one of their principal players. The revolt in Boston is not referred to as Mather's Rebellion or Bradstreet's War. New York, however, did see the rebellion attached to a single person, Jacob Leisler. 
Further confusing things was a letter that arrived in late fall of 1689 addressed to Nicholson. Now, of course, Nicholson had left in June. The most likely explanation for this is that the letter was sent right before Nicholson arrived back in London and the king became aware of what had gone down. The letter had instructed Nicholson to do what he needed to keep the peace. Upon getting the letter, Leisler went ahead and assumed that this gave him full authority to do what he needed to do to secure the peace. Because, hey, Nicholson is gone and he was now the guy in charge. Now, Leisler, of course, was not a stupid guy. He undoubtedly realized that this letter was not meant for him. However, the door was open a crack and he was not going to miss his opportunity. With his newfound authority, Leisler quickly arrested all those who stood opposed to him and rapidly purged out the rest of the Dominion influence from New York. With the colony now firmly in the hands of Leisler, the Committee of Public Safety gave way to a council, with Leisler standing at the head as governor. While Leisler now had control over the colony and his biggest rivals had been purged, he himself had to deal with the pockets of deep unpopularity. Nowhere was this more evident than in Long Island, where Leisler was little more popular than Nicholson had been before him. These remnants of discontent would prove difficult for Leisler to control, as he had even less of a legitimate claim to the governance of the colony than did his predecessors. With Leisler trying to stamp out dissent internally, things looked a little better for him outside of New York. When New England decided that it was going to launch an invasion into Canada in 1690 to help secure their borders, Leisler quickly decided that he was all in. Indian affairs had been for a good deal of time now a substantial concern for the leadership of New York. As we have already discussed, fear of a French invasion was high, and it was largely the regulars from New York who went up to Maine along with Edmund Andros. However, this ended up being a disaster across the board for Leisler. First, despite two attempts to make this thing work, no invasion ever actually happened. Despite planning for and helping fund the expedition, both attempts to invade fell short. However, failures or not, they still cost money which Leisler was required to pay. This came in the form of new taxes, which was about as popular as you would imagine. By the end of that year, virtually all of the English in New York counted Leisler as an enemy, with his only base of support being the Dutch. With Leisler rapidly becoming more and more unpopular, events back in England would signal the beginning of the end of Leisler and his rebellion. While Leisler worked on securing his base in December of 1690, events back in England would lead to the eventual end of his rebellion. While King William III understood the complicated political situation, he surely could not allow Jacob Leisler to run the show indefinitely. That job fell to Henry Slaughter, who in late 1690, King William III appointed as the new governor to the New York colony. This decision came at the same time that Nicholson was chosen to head south to take over Virginia. While Nicholson hustled his way down to Virginia, Slaughter took far longer to arrive. When the colonists learned about Slaughter's appointment, the only information they had is that they were supposed to support him upon his arrival and were instructed to follow his orders. Unfortunately for Slaughter, his trip over to New York did not go smoothly, nor did it go quickly. Along with Slaughter was several hundred British regulars under the command of Richard Inglesby. The problem is that the troops and Inglesby were not on the same ship as Slaughter. When the groups got separated in a storm, it caused the troops to arrive first. Undoubtedly, having several hundred troops suddenly show up in New York did not make anybody feel any better. 
In February 1691, Inglesby and the troops arrived in New York ahead of Henry Slaughter. Upon arriving in New York, Richard Inglesby immediately clashed with Leisler. Leisler had acknowledged that Henry Slaughter was going to be taking over. However, the question over control of Fort James quickly became of paramount importance. As we talked about earlier today, Fort James was a critical holding in New York. Whomever controlled the fort was essentially in control of the colony. Arriving with a few hundred troops, Inglesby demanded that his troops would be allowed to quarter inside of the fort, a move that would have been tantamount to handing over the keys. While Leisler would claim that he was prepared to hand over control to Slaughter, Slaughter was nowhere to be found. Leisler had seen the king's letter to give support to Henry Slaughter. However, nowhere in that letter did it say that they needed to give support to Richard Inglesby. Indignant over the slight, Inglesby continued to demand quarter in the fort, and Leisler continued to refuse. This demand and refusal cycle would repeat itself three times. With the third refusal to grant quarter, fighting broke out between the militiamen and the regulars. Though these were relatively minor skirmishes, there were casualties on both sides. And for the time being, at least, Leisler would maintain control over the fort. Politically, however, for Jacob Leisler, the damage was done. In early March, when Slaughter did finally arrive, the remainders of Leisler's followers quickly deserted him. Leisler had little choice left but to surrender and release the numerous political prisoners that he had arrested over the past several years. Though even now it should be noted that despite his earlier position that he would have handed over the fort to Slaughter, this does not actually take place. Prior to surrendering, Leisler would attempt to hold out and lead a negotiation with Slaughter. To make matters worse, Leisler's claim that he had now done all of this for the king fell completely flat. Sure, maybe the events of 1689 had been for the king, but what about the events of February 1691? Leisler commanded a militia that had opened fire on the king's regular troops. Maybe there was some justification behind the initial rebellion, but firing on English regulars now? Well, that's just treason. Suddenly, it was Henry Slaughter who saw himself with an open door to act decisively. Leisler had killed royal troops. He had, initially at least, refused to hand the fort over, first to Inglesby and then later to Slaughter. Leisler had virtually no ground to stand on when arguing that his actions, as they related to his behavior in 1691, fell short of treason. Slaughter, not wanting to waste such a golden moment to remove the thorn in his side that he knew Leisler could well become, acted quickly. Slaughter had Leisler and seven others quickly arrested. These would include Leisler's most loyal followers and members of his council, including his lieutenant governor, Jacob Milborn. They would all be charged with treason. Trials for the men were quickly held, and unsurprisingly considering just how unpopular Leisler's government had become, all the men were convicted and sentenced to die. It did not help that the judges for the trials were largely made up of those political prisoners that Leisler had just released. Leisler tried to defend himself by claiming that based on the letter from the king in December of 1689, the one initially made out to Nicholson, gave Leisler the authority to make the moves that he did, including the imprisonment of his political rivals. The court and Slaughter, however, disagreed, arguing that upon Nicholson leaving the colony, power should have vested in the council, not in Leisler. With the conviction secured, Slaughter did move to commute the sentence of all but Leisler and Melbourne. The remaining six men had their property confiscated as their punishment. 
Anxious to prevent anything from being caught up in appeals back in London, Slaughter moved quickly in regards to Leisler and Milbourne. On May 16, 1691, Leisler and Milbourne were sent to the gallows and hung. Stories from that day claim that the men were cut down following their hanging and that the many enemies that they had made over the years quickly decapitated them and tore apart their bodies. Despite the violent in for Leisler, he would kick off a political reality in New York that would last for decades after his death. Divisions would persist for nearly 20 years between the established leadership of New York following the death of Leisler and the Leislerians, the group that had supported Leisler during his life and wanted to carry on his legacy. However, the death of Leisler did bring New York into a new political reality. After decades of battles over an assembly, the death of Leisler would help make that happen. Of course, it would be in that same assembly where the divisions would form between the followers of Jacob Leisler and basically everybody else. One does have to wonder if Jacob Leisler did more damage to his own cause than necessary. Leisler was not some political genius. Indeed, most of the things that he did actually went terribly wrong for him. The failed invasion of Canada, his arrest of political adversaries, and his inability to secure the support base beyond the Dutch left Leisler relatively isolated. Furthermore, his messy actions during the handoff of power all but doomed him. Jacob Leisler was likely not going to have a place in the slaughter government. However, had he acquiesced to a more peaceful transition of power, there remains a good chance that he would not have found himself standing on the gallows. Now, just as a final side note, Henry Slaughter, if you are wondering, would have an exceptionally short career as a colonial governor. Slaughter would unexpectedly die in the summer of 1691, just months after his arrival, and Richard Inglesby would become the acting governor of the colony until Benjamin Fletcher's arrived in 1692. On the day that Jacob Leisler was executed, something of a final checkmark was made on concluding the events that had begun in 1689. Leisler was dead. His rebellion was over. Royal control was being restored throughout the colonies, something that we are going to discuss more to lead off next season. The Dominion of New England was officially gone, and the king's authority was quickly being restored. All of the rebellions that had rocked New England and New York were finally at an end. With the end of Leisler's Rebellion also comes the end of the narrative of episodes in our second season. Well, we are not quite done with the Glorious Revolution in English North America, we are done with the Dominion of New England. In two weeks' time, therefore, we are going to come back and jump into our season and review episodes. If the first season of this podcast was focused on the origins of the colonies, this second season has looked at the growing pains of those same colonies. With that, I hope you are all staying healthy and staying safe, and I will see you back here in two weeks' time as we begin our review of the second season.